Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Mario and welcome to season five, episode twenty of Music Is Not a Genre. M X G. I slowed it down and got those hand gestures right. Finally, if you're only listening, you're missing just a wonderful show. We are at the ostensible midpoint of Banner season five, and excited to be here. Thank you as always for watching and listening. Don't forget you can support this podcast, and let me just say your support is needed more than ever right now. I won't go into why, but please. If you have thought about supporting this podcast, if you've listened, if you've watched, if you want to contribute in any way and comment and and be a part of the conversation even more so, please consider joining me at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. It's really the only effective way that I make any income from all of the work I do for this podcast. You can also go to anchor.fm slash music is not a genre if you're more of a fan of the audio version, but either one works. YouTube.com slash at music is not a genre is the public hub where everything is free. And please subscribe and like and share if you haven't yet. NickDiMatteo.com is my website where you get much more than this podcast. Film clips, voiceovers, things like that. And as always, please listen to and support my band, Rec, near and dear to my heart, R-E-C, at RecArea.BandCamp.com or wherever you listen to music. Let's get right to it. This is the freewheeling catch-up machine number three, subtitled, Fetishizing the Past. And that subtitle may go some distance towards explaining what I have on display here, which, if you're only listening, is a hat from a type of music group marching band called the Mummers, which if you are from Philadelphia, you will know what that means. And uh, if not, look it up, or I may explain it later. I don't know. Because I don't script everything. What I try to make all of these podcasts is a conversation. That's what's most important to me is connecting with you. As I say, music, conversation, and connection is the feedback that I get from you. And if you've seen a freewheeling catch-up machine episode, this is only the third one, but if you've seen the other two, you know that what it consists of is me connecting more directly reviewing comments that fans and guests have posted, discussions that I've had with people, maybe on social media or on YouTube or anything like that, anything that I may have missed or any corrections I need to make from old episodes, what's been going on lately, what's coming up, and some kind of central theme or at least a topic that I can expound on just just you know briefly. Uh, I think the last one had to do with Italian performers, uh, something like that. And this one, fetishizing the past, and we are going to get into that when uh, it comes up. And it will come up very kind of organically. So let's just get, let's just go right to it because there's a lot here. And I want to make sure I get to it all to honor everyone who's commented and who's uh, been watching and listening all this time. Going back actually to season four, and there's a reason for that, right now, My most popular episode, at least as far as views go on YouTube, I'm not 100% sure what the most popular one is, uh, the audio version for streams, but on YouTube it is the Death is Dumb episode about Terry Kath, who is the late lead guitarist and singer for Chicago. If you don't know, if you have heard any of these podcasts, or a few of them anyway, you'll know that I'm kind of obsessed with that band and with Terry Kath in particular, and I guess I found out that a lot of other people are too because uh, this 
episode topped well over a thousand views, which is more than any other video really on my channel. There's a couple that have more, but they're voiceovers and that's kind of a whole different angle. But as far as music based stuff, this one tops it. So thank you for watching that. And if you haven't, go check it out. Terry Kath, Death is Dumb. Look it up on youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. And here's some comments that viewers uh, posted since that episode went up, uh, or at least since the end of season four, because anything that they commented on prior, I probably mentioned in the freewheeling catch-up machine number two. Daniel Weeks said, it's hard not, it's hard not to be mad at Terry. What a guitar player. What guitar player wouldn't want to be able to play one-tenth of what he could play? We weren't ready for you to go, Terry. You know that was selfish. And it's fun. This is interesting to me because I do like to explain when I do Death is Dumb why I phrase it that way, why I came up with that. Why do I say Death is Dumb? And I think this guy kind of gets at part of the essence of that, Daniel Weeks, and that is that you get angry, you know, that's that you've been robbed of any future music and, and, you know, developments that might have happened if this person had survived longer. And of course, this is a small fraction of what people feel who actually knew Terry, etc., Terry's daughter, etc. But that kind of it does go towards why I do Death is Dumb. Claude DeMarco said, I agree with you that the first 11 albums were the cream of Chicago's catalog. Their musicianship during the calf years was impeccable. I could listen to songs like Poem 58, Oh Thank You Great Spirit, and What's This World Coming To All Day Long. Terry was a generational talent. His ability to play both lead and rhythm guitar at the same time while singing was jaw-dropping. Something I may not have completely known, but maybe, you know, suspected. The entire Tanglewood concert demonstrates this. Tanglewood, my son might be performing Tanglewood this summer. You are not overstating his influence on the band. He was the unofficial leader. You could tell by how the other guys watched him that they followed his lead. And that's interesting because I haven't seen a lot of live concert footage. If you know me, you know I prefer recorded material rather than recorded live material because I find it to be subpar. But I think with a band like this who was amazing live and amazing at jamming, and I think it's still a good live uh you know, it's probably worth checking out. I've been following Chicago from the very beginning, and they've always been my favorite band. There's nothing like listening to Kath, Satera, and Seraphin do, doing one of their extended jams. Superb stuff. So thank you for that, Claude DeMarco. Matt Christopher said, been a Terry Kath fan since 1969. Undoubtedly one of the best in rock. Certainly long before I was aware of Terry Kath, so that's kind of awesome. And Thomas Haney said, Terry Kath was the glue of that band. Just listen to Just You and Me his jazzy improvisations. He was always a part of Chicago and not the leader, but when he died, so did Chicago. If Terry would have lived, he likely would have gone solo. Who knows what great blues funk rock would have happened in the eighties. And I think that's true. He was already working on a little bit of solo material uh, right before his death. It's interesting that Thomas believes that he was not the leader and Claude believes he was. And I think there's arguments on both sides. Uh, but again, an episode worth checking out and a person worth checking out. Terry Kath from Chicago, which brings us to season five, finally, episode one, which was my A to Z list of favorite artists, heart artists, not artists I just like, but artists that I can't do without. And I realized subsequently that I missed two of them, two very different artists uh, in alphabetical order. One is Kendrick Lamar. Uh, because now every time he puts something out, I absorb it. I listen to it often well more than once. I've listened to his entire back catalog, and I feel as though whatever he does in the future, I'm going to listen to. And then Squeeze, that kind of new wave, uh, pop, Beatles-esque British band from the late 70s through the 80s. They even had a hit in the 90s. That's a band where I could listen to them every day. You know, they were diverse enough that that would work and just had an amazing number of hits and their, you know, back catalog is incredible. Okay. Season four, season five, episode four was on the roots, the great Philly hip hop band, live band. And I couldn't remember which song got me into drumming. And it's, it's unfortunate that I'm not a big fan of moving the camera because if I moved it that way, and if you're just listening, too bad. Imagine me pointing left. I would show you a drum setup that I have. It's my son's old electronic drum kit. It's a full-size kit. 
and he didn't want it anymore. So I've been using it. I've been getting pretty good on the drums. I'll have to say to the point where uh, my wife and I are finally recording a song we wrote together and I opted to do these live drums on it instead of finding samples. And it's because I think one of the things that got me back into drumming or to want to get better at drumming was a root song that I couldn't remember in that episode. It's I Don't Care from Tipping Point. I don't care as long as the bass line's thumping and the drum line's banging away. Make one move and I'm running away. One false move and I'm running away. I might have gotten some of those lyrics wrong, but the the backbeat on that is uh, just absolutely incredible. Just absolutely incredible. Uh, And I want to make one more comment about that episode, which is it's interesting taking time off for the summer. It takes me a while to get back into the groove, as I think that's true for anyone. And so the first few episodes, even though they're totally fine, I enjoyed them, certain things uh, might not have been where I wanted them to be. And for me, the title of that Roots episode was not my favorite title ever. I was trying to make a joke and it didn't work out. Um, Something about the, the Roots come alive, the Roots come together alive because... There's a Beatles uh, connection there. There's the Roots Come Alive album. There's the fact that they're a live band. You know, eh. It's eh. All right? I got to be honest about it. Episode 8 was on, uh, it was a Music Is Everything episode, and it was on the soft rock movement, or soft music movement, I should say, that has been happening for the last 10 years or more, that to me rivals the soft music movement of the 1970s. And I won't go into that because I did it in that episode, but I had some uh, a cool uh, conversation with a good friend of mine, Steve Erickson, who is a, a writer and a musician, a filmmaker himself, uh, a critic. And he made a point about Clarence Clarity for Rina Sawayama that there were other things that Clarence you know, produced with her and, and certainly with other people. And that it's interesting that in, in her most recent album, which I made the point I wasn't a big f- fan of, uh, that he was so involved. And I would wonder how involved was he, how deeply involved, uh, and what influence he had on the general you know, uh, tenor of that album. was Because if you look back at her first album or the other things that he's done, he tends to be more kind of vibrant and out there. And it seemed like maybe the other producers or Sawayama herself hemmed him in, or maybe that was his decision too. Just interesting. And Steve made another point that about quiet female anger, which I love this because I have always been a fan of, I mean, all kinds of music, but I've always since my childhood had favorite female artists. I don't know whether it's cis female or, you know, trans female, whatever. And one thing that I tend to look for with every artist is voice. If I am attached to the voice is the, is the style of the music and then the writing. And you can go to whole, you know, uh, you could go to Juliana Hatfield, particularly, you know, focusing on the nineties, you can go to the whole, like Lilith Fair and some of those artists, you can go to the Pat Benatar and Joan Jett, you can go to the, the freaking Bangles, and you could you could go as far as, uh, you know, be a Badoobie today, someone I mention frequently, or meet me at the altar, somebody I'll mention later, and I've always had uh, an ear for female vocalists that I really, really enjoy, and Steve's point was, it seems as though it's not in vogue right now for most female artists to express their anger in a, a kind of an upfront aggro way, that they're doing it in more of a quiet way. And listen, quiet anger, I've done that in some of my songs. I think it's extremely effective, and a lot of those songs are extremely effective. But I don't think it should ever be the entire album or an artist's entire career. I feel as though... Everyone has it within them to shout, to get that out in a stronger way. And Steve wonders if that's a societal thing, if it's, or if it's just a personal thing. And I think it's a great question to ask. Episode 11, uh, Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam and, you know, got a good number of views. I, I think that it actually deserves more views because there's a great conversation within that 
podcast itself. So if you are a Pearl Jam fan or, or better, if you don't know about them, go check that out. But I had a good conversation with my cousin, uh, Jim Costelli, who's also a musician composer. And we were talking about where is the cutoff. And this really comes into, you know, this week's subtopic. Where is the cutoff between old and new music? And of course, that's different for everyone. It has to be. But for people of our certain generation, it's interesting that we disagree on this, Jim and I, in that Jim felt as though the 80s was the line of demarcation between old music and new and still thinks that. And I think his main thing, it was because the 80s became very electronic. Not to say that the 70s didn't have that somewhat in the 60s too, but that the predominant sound in the 80s that we remember is electronic in one way or another. Even if it was a live band, they had keyboards, etc. Or there were remixes and things like that. And he feels as though the click track was used, was overused, and now, of course, everybody uses it pretty much. And they didn't have, you know, artistic freedom to do the, you know, and that may be true. You know, the music industry was sort of exerting a little bit more control than it ever had back then and and continued to do so really to its detriment until it sort of, you know, had to figure out what the hell to do when the Internet came along. But I and I said I felt like the cutoff for me, at least at that, you know, in that part of my life was the 90s. But that, and even though I'm actually older than Jim, I think it has a lot to do with, and Jim made a point, before I get on to that, Jim made a point about ultra compression and auto-tuning and beat quantizing and things that happened more starting in the 90s and certainly in the O's. And he felt that it was such a jarring transition from the 60s to the 60s and 70s sound, organic rock to electro in the 80s. And I somewhat agree. I think, and we kind of came to an agreement that we both think that the 80s were a transitional decade. Now, that said, a lot of the 90s went back to organic because, as I mentioned in, you know, the 2000s episode, if you were playing rock in the early mid-90s, you you were not, quote-unquote, allowed to have anything electronic in there. You know, it had to just be the, you know, hard rock band, you know, which uh, thankfully broke out of that in the late 90s and certainly in the O's and beyond. But what I think the point is, is this. We all have different times when we connect with music. Different times because of when we were born, but also different times in our lives. And this brings me to the the subtopic fetishizing the past. And for this, for your enjoyment, I'm going to take this hat and I'm going to put it on. And hopefully I won't hit the mic that's hanging over here. And... And to kind of say to you, if I can, if this hat can stay on without me knocking it down, I'm not even sure which way does it go. Okay, that's good. And that is that we all are, it's a dumb thing to say, but we're all connected to the past, you know, and we're all connected in, in thousands of ways and very deeply, whether we admit it or know it or not, even people who are very forward thinking and leave things behind are being heavily, heavily influenced by the past and their past. And one thing that I'm very big on and that I like to do and that I went that we kind of Jim and I talked about this. It was a very long conversation on um, Facebook, on Rex's Facebook page, is that I like to contextualize and also recontextualize, meaning I like to understand why music was made the way it was at a certain time and, and then why that changed and to not place a value judgment on that change and to say, well, music of such and such decade was better because X, Y, Z. Because I am a firm believer of if you break down music, you know, to its component parts, it doesn't matter what decade you pick from any point really in history, but especially if we're talking about the last century or so, the same level of quality good, bad, great, wonderful, awful, complexity, simplicity, creativity, rigidity, it all exists all the time. It may come out sounding differently. The charts may emphasize different parts of that differently, but it all exists. So that to me is the contextualizing. But then I also like to recontextualize. And 
This is super important to me. If It may even be more important, and that is this. We all have the capacity to stay or to be as open as we were when we were kids. I believe that it is a myth that it is objectively easier to learn languages and to connect with things emotionally and to connect with new experiences when you're a kid. Well, I'll say this. It, it's not that it's a myth. It is easier. It's a myth that we can't do it when we're older. I find that if you work at it, if you work hard enough at being open, at being open to new ideas, new experiences, it, it, you will be able to learn a new language uh, maybe, you know, almost as easily as, as when you're a kid, not a, not a toddler kid and you grew up with it. I'm talking about a second language or third language, something like that. You will be able to appreciate music and film and art and whatever else you consider, uh, you know, an artistic uh, creation of today as much as the stuff that you grew up with that connected with you when you were in your formative years. I firmly believe that and I believe it because I've done it. I mentioned this guy before. I won't mention him by name because I'm not a big fan of his. I'm sure he's a fine person uh, in his personal life. Actually, I actually have no idea if that's true. But I do not agree with him when it comes to one thing in particular and many more. But in particular, he thinks all music since 1990 sucked. Now, of course, that's extreme. Very few people would agree with that. Even if you don't like the music after that, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would say it all just flat-out sucked. And that's because he shut himself down after that point for one reason or another, consciously or not. You know, couldn't continue to grow in that fashion and or else he's grown, whatever. And at that point, I could have done the same thing. We are around the same age, that guy and I. And I'm going to go ahead and take this hat off now because it's not great for the neck. And uh, thank you, Mummers, the Philly New Year's Day band. That's similar to Mardi Gras. And that is when the 90s hit. Right before then, I was somewhat into what was going on at the time, but I was also very heavily into classic rock, you know. And I could have stayed there. I could have stayed in, well, I grew up in the 80s or 70s or whatever, and that's what I listened to, and that's what means a lot to me. Screw everything else, whatever. But I had a reawakening in the 90s because of grunge. And then subsequently because of hip-hop. And then because of power pop. And then I, you know, a little bit was a little less interested in things in the late 90s. And I had another reawakening in the early 2000s when uh, the new wave, the new new wave kind of came along like White Stripes and the Hives and uh, the Strokes and the Vines and, you know, all the bands like that. Uh, Ha Ha D, Block Party then in 04, the later. Huge reawakening. Uh, I had another reawakening uh, to, I'll say, electronic music in the early teens. <laughs> this is because, I'm not going to edit that cough out, by the way. I edit podcasts uh, as part of my living, and that's just not something I need to do for this one. What, what a wonderful pitch there. If anybody has a podcast, I can edit it for you. And edit it way, even way tighter than what I do for my own. I started producing my own rec band music more electronically in the teens, in the the 2010s, because of that reawakening. And it's because I am always open. I'm, you know, I don't mean always like every minute of every day, but I'm always working to a point of being open enough to know what's going on now. And what that affords me is not only greater pleasures, because then I can get into stuff like, uh, meet Me at the Altar, who I'll mention in, in, in a little bit, or other bands and artists who have come out in the last, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, which is, uh, you know, more recent for people, you know, who have been around longer, and find that same kind of joy and excitement in the music that I've found in other bands. And that doesn't mean I still won't have those heart artists and artists that no matter what they do, they're going to hit me in a certain place like a U2, you know. Uh, who keep putting out great stuff in The Cure is supposed to put out something this year as well. But it does mean that I can make those connections, continue to make those connections, and that and that the advantage there is that I can see, because I've been through it, 
that music today is no better or worse than it has been at any time in history. And that's the fetishizing the past part to me. And that is when we parse the past or even the present, we're using our own biases, of course. But more than that, we're basing it on only what we've heard. And the thing about the past even is that we haven't heard nearly as much as what has existed. You know, I'm always discovering stuff from previous decades that I had never heard before. You know, like I might have heard two songs from the zombies and then I listened to all of that, you know, or I might have heard, oh, I don't know, anything, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, the Green River, I, ne- I never knew about them. I went back and listened to them and stuff like that. I, I find that valuable, but that's not me fetishizing the past. That's me treating the past as something new as well, you know, and so I, I can tell you that there's no greater level of complexity in music in the past. It's just that maybe that certain things were more popular then, but I, and even more than that, again, if what you were listening to was that kind of music, that's what you think of that period. You know, so I naturally associate the eighties with, you know, new wave, whether it's electronic or, you know, rock based, or I associate it with Prince, you know, so Prince, The Cure, U2, and all of those great new romantic new wave bands, the British invasion type bands, you know, the second British invasion. That was at all of the 80s? No. Love lifts us up where we belong, you know, and think of all those kinds of uh, singles. Someone else had a completely different experience of the 80s. So there's, there's really no way for us, if you continue down this path, you will get to the conclusion, logic, reason, and persuasion, that objectively speaking, no one period of music is better or simpler or worse or more complex than any other. And to look back uh, with rose-colored glasses is uh, we're all doing it. We all do it into many, you know, in many subjects, not just music. And that's our right to do that. It's our birthright. But I think you're wasting part of your life if you're not trying to find those same joys today. So that's that's my mini whatever for this podcast. Let's move on. But I want to hear your comments too. And also thank you, Jim, for sparking such a conversation. Thank you. Episode 12, I'm mentioning because it's a, an interview. And I did, I think, six interviews so far this season. And there are more coming. Uh, Joe, Joe DeLuca, what a great guy. What just And he just today thanked me again for having him as a guest because a friend of his reposted, which by the way, please repost, share and repost, please. It, it means the world to creators like me. And I have to say, Joe, it was a pleasure having you on. And uh, we will probably do something again, if not this season, then soon, because there's more conversation to be had. Kevin Stroud, one of my top, viewed episodes, the host of History of the English Language podcast, such a gracious person, did so much work for that interview, just pulling things together to talk about and made it interesting in more ways than I could have imagined. And the fact that his fans were, were you know, listening to me, despite whatever audio issues there might have been. I got to thank those fans too. So thank you to Kevin and his fans. John Kieran Fernandez, just a beautiful person, just an absolutely beautiful person with a beautiful heart. And I hope to be more connected with the things that he's doing in the music world, especially Bob Adams, a near and dear old friend and family member of mine is just a great guy. And I want to thank Bob for being a guest too. And for sharing his interview, Danny Burstein, Tony award winner, Busy, busy man. Could have easily said no at any point. You know, kept his word and did just a wonderful and compelling interview. If you don't know, the star, the previous star of Moulin Rouge won the Tony Award. Star of film, television, and stage. Look up Danny Burstein and then check out my interview with him. And then my mini interview with Ashira, singer-songwriter, up-and-coming singer-songwriter, Thank you for suggesting it. I want to say this because there are more to come. And today's actually I'm reaching out to some few, hopefully future guests if they say yes. Uh, I am always open to interviewing whoever, you know, if, if the fit is right. And that could be you. If you're somehow musically related, then tell me and I will most likely interview you in some capacity. It's funny how many people I've connected with online 
Uh, big thanks to Dane Martin for that, who I will be working with again soon. Social media, especially, who have asked for X, Y, or Z, or we exchanged like likes and follows and etc. But but other than Ashira, there's one other guy who said, hey, you want to come to my show? I'm, I'm playing in New York. I'll be in town. Great. Ashira was the only one who said, I, I have a single coming out. Would you interview me? I can't say I'd say yes to everybody because if I get an influx, there's no physical way to do that. But I will probably likely say yes to many of you. So, and or if it's not you, if it's somebody you know, interview this person, it's my favorite band, whatever, let me know. Episode 13 was all about covers. And that's just going to keep coming up, partly because of the album, you know, It Wasn't Me, the album that I just put out, which is doing really well right now. Thank you to all the listeners out there mostly covers on that album. And, you know, I won't go over my covers philosophy again as I've done it before, but I want to say that my bandmate of mine, Rich, uh, who was also, Rich Berta was also a guest, uh, an interview guest a couple of season or two ago. We were rehearsing for a gig last week and he said, have you ever heard the Cranberries version of the Carpenters song Close to You? Or They Long to Be Close to You, whatever it is. And I was like, yes. And he played it. And he's a beautiful player and he has a very sweet voice and he sang it and he loved like the rhythm of it and the chords. And I said, If I Were a Carpenter is one of my favorite covers albums ever because of the bands and artists that are on there and how they did the songs and the way they interpreted songs the way I like to interpret songs, which is make it your own, you know. So it was cool that we had that conversation, which is a great segue to talk about. What the hell just happened in the last few months musically? And yes, that is that uh, mid last year, I want to say. And I'm going to stand up right now. So for those of you watching, you get to see uh, another side of me. And if I don't knock anything down, it'd be a blessing. It's these three albums right here. Uh, First one, Long Held Grudges, The Drop. Stuff that I created for film and other projects that's all instrumental, that was never officially released, is currently only on Bandcamp. I plan at some point this year to release it worldwide on all streaming services, etc. But for now, recarry.bandcamp.com, long held grudges, if you're into weird instrumental stuff. Uh, and then, of course, Rec Collection, the best of Rec 2007 to 2020, which is... Th- my version of a greatest hits album, it's 30 tracks from, what is it? Eight albums, something like that. I don't know. They're on the wall. You can see some of them, uh, all of Rex stuff as you know, starting with the first album in 2007, even though there was, there was some live stuff before then, but that's officially then. And I really urge you to listen to this. If you don't know a lot about Rex, it's the greatest place to start. Thank you if you've listened to it already. And then most most recently, it wasn't me. Recognize the hand. Uh, covers, movie music, weird unreleased singles, one of which will be at the end of this episode uh, for all this thematic reasons. And I'll talk about that when uh, I get there. Thank you for all the listening you've been doing. I really appreciate it. Please, if you haven't, wherever you listen to music, it's everywhere. It wasn't me by Rec. Check it out. Uh, That's what's been going on. And I'm saying that because, as I mentioned before, my wife and I are working on a single that will be released, I believe, sometime in February of 2023. Uh, If this is the future, hi, this is an oldies podcast. And then Rec will be releasing a new album, probably a double album, in hopefully the spring, the late spring. We'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm going to be doing again, more drumming for that, and it will be a, a, one of the definitive rec albums. That's all I can tell you about it. I'll be releasing snippets and the singles from that as it comes prior to the end of this season, certainly, of uh, the podcast. And that's my uh, little uh, pitch break there, promotional break. Episode 14 was a Christmas episode, which, by the way, next year I think I'm going to do Instead of a Christmas episode, when I get to that place, I'm going to do an other holidays episode or a full holidays episode. Should be fun. You know, Hanukkah and Hanukkah music and any other music from other cultures and other holidays of that period of the year, you know. But at Christmas party this year, my brother played a song 
a, a version of Frosty the Snowman that was clearly from the, let's say, 50s, 60s something, and said, who is this? And the woman had a very high kind of almost kid voice, scratchy, almost Carol Channing-y, if you want to say. And I was like, I have no idea. And he said, it's Ella Fitzgerald. Not on my wife's credit, she guessed it right away because she knows Ella's voice so well. I was like, I had a suspicion, but I couldn't have ever said that with any certainty. And it turns out that if you get Ella's like main, like she did more than one Christmas album, but that main one that we all know that I mentioned in the Christmas episode, there's an expanded version with alternate takes. And this was an alternate take of Frosty that was just fun as hell. So look it up. Uh, And then uh, there's the Beatles, which I decided to make a big thing this year because I've done a couple of things here and there on the Beatles. I did a John Lennon, Death is Dumb. I did an early episode where I featured a lot of Beatles albums, very early episode before I knew what the hell I was doing. But I was like, I need to do uh, the definitive, like, music is not a genre. MXG, as you see in my T-shirt, which if you want this T-shirt, let me know, uh, uh, episode. And couldn't do it in one, so it's six parts, and I've done two parts already. Next week's, or whichever, the next episode after this is going to be part three of the Beatles, by the way. It's, it's fascinating to me that I haven't gotten a tremendous amount of feedback on that. And I think it's partly because the world is saturated with Beatles stuff. What I would say is, don't think that what I'm saying is is, is all of what you've heard before. You're going to hear some different things. So it's worth it for you to watch those episodes. And I've created a playlist that I'll just keep adding to as, as those episodes go along. And then I think I'll tag add at the end the John Lennon episode as a, as a bonus. And I just think it's worth your time to check those out. And I'm very excited about the next episode of part three. It's going to be probably one of my favorites uh, as far as the six part uh, series in the Beatles goes. And then, yeah, Decade Slam, same thing. The episode I did on every genre has a peak era and which decade was that genre's peak era to me was controversial because it throws in a lot of opinion. I I justify the opinions, but it doesn't mean I'm right about that. More importantly, there, there have to be a ton of you out there who disagree. And I'd love to hear from you. So please look up the hundred year, uh, was it the hundred year decade slam? I think it's called. Look it up on youtube.com slash at music is not a genre and, and watch it and comment on it because I want to hear how the hell you disagree with it or if you're like you dead on on any of it, frankly. Which brings me to episode 18. We're almost at the end here. Uh, 2000s rock. Such a fun episode to do and I loved making those playlists. Uh, thank you for listening to those. Uh, a couple things I forgot to mention. <sighs> Lyrically, in the 2000s, even though it varied wildly, you were allowed, quote-unquote, to be more sincere with your lyrics. In the 90s, the only sincerity that you could have generally was angst, sadness, melancholy, longing. I mean, there are always exceptions, but you get it. If you were going to be happier in any way, more emotional or softer, let's say, you had to have a tongue, you know, one, one of your tongues in your cheek. Well, if you have more than one tongue, tongue in cheek, you know, a little twist on it. That was not true in the 2000s. 2000s went everywhere and kind of opened back up the sincerity, which uh, then I think has sort of taken another back seat in the last 10 years or so with that soft music movement. Again, it's not that it, it's the sincerity still there, but the ability to just be bold and open about it. It doesn't exist as much in some music. In other music, it's still very much there. I mentioned Meet Me at the Altar twice so far. I'm going to do it again. Say It to My Face is their brand new single. I heard about them in 2019 and now they're really making waves. And this is the perfect example of this resurgence of 2000s, like, you know, emo in particular, is coming from bands who are made up of much more diverse people than the kind of, you know, predominantly white male bands of the 2000s. Still great music in many ways, but, and not all of those bands were all white male, but today 
you name a new emo screamo band, including another one I just recently discovered when I was submitting music for uh, sync licensing, for licensing for film and commercials and stuff. Their template song was by a band called Anorak with an exclamation point. From J- they're an emo band from Japan who do both Japanese and English music. And I was blown away by how much they sound like stuff, you know, like at the drive-in and stuff like that from like the late 90s and O's. And that just got me thinking, well, there's no question that I've missed a ton of bands from that period because there were bands from Japan who were doing that kind of music uh, in the 2000s. That there were bands from so many other countries. If you know, again, I think I mentioned that in that episode, let me know because I want to hear uh, what those bands were or are today even. Two of which, Oslo, Starlight, their song was on one of my playlists, was nowhere to be found really online. So I created the video for that so it could be in the playlist. And same for Convoy, spelled with a J, not a Y, Swedish band, their song Glory Hole, Love that song wasn't anywhere online, so I created it for the YouTube playlist. Also in the 2000s, concept albums seriously regained popularity, and that's something I didn't really dive into at all, If or maybe even mention in episode 18. Green Day and My Chemical Romance are two of the big bands who did concept albums. Uh, and then, yes, here are some bands I missed. Veltpunch. They're Japanese. Started in 97 were, I guess, big, I assume, in 2000 at some point. Didn't know them. You know, perfect. Uh, Steve and I had a great conversation about the new, new wave of that era and that, the, that you know, to me, I'll say this. I remember thinking in the late 70s and the 80s that melding rock with dance was a brilliant idea. And of all bands, I'm going to mention you too. When you think of songs like New Year's Day or Two Hearts Beat is One, we used to play those as DJs in our dance mixes because they have that kind of almost disco beat to them. I feel as though when that was mostly underground stuff, that the promise that was held of rock and dance merging in a very significant way came to fruition in the 2000s. And Steve says it's, he believes it's because disco of all kinds, high energy, techno, uh, you know, house became more available in remote areas because of the internet. And so bands were being more influenced by stuff they couldn't have heard before, couldn't get access to. And I take that for granted because I grew up near Philadelphia. So I could just go into Philly or even closer in South Jersey and find pretty much all kinds of music. So I never felt shut off from any kind of music. And I was exposed to that kind of music back then. But a lot of people weren't. And so they were in the 2000s and it influenced a lot of the music then. One big thing that changed the 2000s, if you were a punk fan who had long been told disco was trash, now, this is Steve talking, you could easily listen to Donna Summer or Chic online without spending any money and you could judge it for yourself. You could pick up on new styles and scenes very quickly. Whereas in the early 80s, only a few record stores across the country sold Chicago house music 12-inch singles, as Steve Erickson says. That's very true. Access means a lot to a lot of people for so many reasons, even well beyond music. Uh, Which brings me to the last episode so far this season, not counting this one, episode 19, crooner episode. Uh, Thank you to the person on LinkedIn. I'm sorry I didn't note your name who commented on uh, how much they love Frank Sinatra. I appreciate your opinion and your comment. But the main thing here is that I didn't get a chance to have the long conversation with my dad and my mom that I wanted to before this episode was recorded because I knew they'd have information. And so I'm including it here. Things I missed, ideas they had that I think are worth mentioning. So if you're a crooner fan, stay tuned, stick around in the next few minutes. It said, don't forget, I forgot from the 1930s, the brother singing duo, uh, not that they didn't sing together, but two singers, Bob and Ray Eberly. And I said, oh, no, no, you mean, you must mean um, uh, Phil and Don. And they were like, no, not the Eberly brothers, Eberly with a B. And it's not Bob and Ray, the comedy duo either. And if you don't know any of those, thank you. It's wonderful that you're so young and that they were very popular, Bob and Ray. They, they sang for different uh, big bands. And in 1936, uh, Bob started 
And he was someone who was idolized by Frank Sinatra. Uh, some of what Sinatra did, uh, Bing Crosby was a big influence. Apparently, Bob Everly was too. In 1938, Glenn Miller was starting a band and said, you know, I, to Bob, I wish uh, you I wish you had a brother who could sing. You're already employed. And Bob's like, I do have a brother who can sing. And so Ray became the singer for the Glenn Miller Band. Uh, in 1939, Bob was the second biggest music star in the country behind Bing Crosby. So that was a big miss. And then somebody else named Dick Hames. Uh, when Sinatra left the Harry James Orchestra to go to Tommy Dorsey in 1940, Dick Hames took his place. So apparently he's a big dude. My dad made a great point that I posted on LinkedIn for that woman who commented, and that is that one of the innovations of Sinatra and why he's so important musically for music history and music development is that he brought a conversational style to singing. It wasn't stentorian. It wasn't, uh, you know, overly mellifluous in many ways. He made it into a conversation between himself and the audience, you know, or the one person listening at that time. And it's one of the things that we take for granted when we think of such, why is so-and-so so revered? We forget that there are some people who were so influential that their influence spread so far and wide and deep that it's everywhere that we take for granted that it wasn't everywhere before they came along. And you can think of people as diverse as, you know, Billie Eilish. Not at all like a crooner style who employs a lot of that conversational delivery. Um, my mom and dad blew my head away. They said that originally crooning and crooners referred only to men. I never heard that. I never thought it. I never knew it. It doesn't surprise me, but it's very interesting to me. I always thought it was more about a style. My mom said that cabaret was what they called women crooners. I think of cabaret as a different style from crooning. One of my mom's favorites was Nancy Wilson from the sixties. And even she will say she's more of a kind of a jazz and cabaret singer than a crooner. Uh, my dad's album that I featured that song in that episode, the arranger, I couldn't remember his name, was Tony Luisi, who worked for with my dad for several, several years after that and was the writer of many of my dad's uh, singles. My parents asked, posited, that uh, could Teddy Pendergrass and Luther Vandross, 70s, 80s, 90s, be considered crooners? And I think, yes, tangentially, they're R&B, and that there's certain types of R&B singers who have a crooning style, and I would place those two certainly in that style, but they are not just straight up crooning. They go beyond that. Uh, and then my dad said, what about John Legend? And, you know, I think crooner. And I'll say it because of this. I don't think he's very deeply R&B. I don't think he's very deeply soul. I think what he does is more on the kind of the crooning surface of things. Not that he can't because he's done it before, but the primarily what he does, I think has more of a crooning feel to it. Uh, and that's the crooner episode. I know you have other opinions. Let me know. Some other comments from fans. Uh, this, the acoustic version of the Violent Femme song, Never Tell, has been just getting a ton of views on YouTube. And thank you for watching that. Brandon Moore said, great cover, love the energy. Thank you, Brandon. This is one of my favorite Femme songs, and it was pretty wild to me when I discovered recently how it's really only a few bar chords on the guitar. You don't, you don't even notice that when you have Brian Ritchie filling in all that space. Brian Ritchie was, is the bass player for Violent Femmes, and it's true. When you listen more closely to almost every Violent Femme song, chord-wise, they're very simple. And Brian Ritchie just it goes all over the place. Very melodic bass player and very dynamic bass player. Sam Verharan said, This song, Never Tell, is one of my favorite songs ever, and I'm so sad there isn't more videos, tab, etc., teaching how to play it on guitar, and especially bass, because I just can't quite figure it out. And he made the point, especially bass. Guitar, no big shakes. I, I could play it, you know, on acoustic. Not a big deal. Um, hopefully uh, somebody will put the tab down for that bass, though. Boy because I do love playing bass. A recent comment on the acoustic version of Prince's Alphabet Street that I have up there. Look it up. Ma Cheek, C-I-E-K, said, keep on doing, quote-unquote, takes. Winky face. Because I always said, Nick's acoustic take on Alphabet Street, whatever. So apparently they like that very much. Even though the most popular Prince song that I've covered acoustically on 
youtube.com slash app music is not a genre is still currently mountains, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, and I just want to give a big general shout out to one of my biggest fans, Ray Rain. I may not be pronouncing your name right. An Australian uh, person. Thank you so much for being such a rabid and avid fan. Please, if you're listening, if you're watching, share my music everywhere you can. Share Rex music everywhere you can. Share the podcast everywhere you can, but especially the music. Speaking of music, what have I been listening to lately? I got to be honest, not a whole lot. I mean, maybe more than a lot of people. Uh, I I heard, uh, here's what I've listened to. Micaiah McRaven, awesome jazz artist. I had a list of jazz and of the six I had on there, Micaiah McRaven's was the only one that I connected with. And I like how it melds old with new and etc. Don't or Don't, D-O-W-N-T, which is a Japanese band I stumbled on when I was listening to Anorak. And they mix kind of that harder emo sound with more of an ambient sound. And I particularly like their ambient music. White Reaper, which Steve Erickson suggested, is somebody... I haven't fully listened to all of their stuff, but they're a new-ish. I guess pretty new. Power Pop band, and you know I love Power Pop. Uh, Vivi Villivalo from Him. New album out. Very melodramatic. And I love that because there's still room in the world for melodramatic music. Tycho, T-Y-C-H-O, is somebody I mentioned before in a different episode. I, I have been exploring his music a little more as kind of a DJ person. And think they're worth getting into. I listened to, as I mentioned in the covers, I hadn't listened in that episode to Cat Power's new covers album, number two. Wasn't a huge fan of the first one. Also not a huge fan of the second one. Not because she's not a perform a good performer or anything. Uh, it's in, it, it, I'll have to say I'm not being super fair about it because the one thing she did that I applaud is chose songs off the beaten path. There are almost no songs on there that, that the average person would know as originals. So I applaud that a thousandfold. I'm just not a huge fan of the sub-dynamic delivery, you know, and that's just a personal thing. But the reason why I haven't been listening to much is because of I'm working on new music. I get to a point where my head doesn't have the space to enjoy music like for listening purposes because there's too much of my own music in there. And the only music I've really listened to at great length that I, and I've had to is in prep for gigs. So songs that were new that we hadn't done before I had to, you know, drill and listen to get the particulars of, and then, you know, background music for eating dinner or whatever. I have to keep my head clear and it's not even I'm choosing to, I, I can't, like at this point, I'm listening to more podcasts than I am to music because my brain is ready to explode with new music, which is one thing that's coming. And what else is coming is, you know, these things in the second half of season four. We're almost done this great mega episode. The remaining four Beatles episodes, as I mentioned, starting with the next episode, episode 21, will be Beatles part three. There's going to be another Death is Dumb. I think it might be on Bowie because that's a big, not an oversight, but someone I've been putting off for a while. I think it's time to do. Uh, I believe there will be more interviews. I'll let you know if these people are up for it and they say yes, absolutely. I will likely do an episode on Neo Soul, which started and really became a thing at least. Didn't start, but became a thing in the 90s and still around. I'll probably do an episode on Beck. A lot of people have said that uh, quite a bit of the music that Wreck does sounds like Beck. Uh, I'm certainly not all of it or vice versa, but I like that connection and I like that uh, you know reference, how Beck recontextualizes certain types of uh, genres and sounds and kind of creates a, an amalgam of that. Uh, I'll probably do an episode on British hip-hop. I was very much for a while into The Streets and Dizzy Rascal and, and said, well... I'd like to explore more how British hip-hop is different from American hip-hop. And I may go to a couple other countries, too. I might do an episode on TV theme songs. I've always been a big fan. And they've kind of been coming back into vogue in some ways, even if it's just nostalgically. I'd like to devote an episode to that. I'll probably do a book or two uh, if I get around to reading another music book, and I think I will in the next couple months. And then I'll do uh, one on what I call music self-help books. I almost did this before I did the soft music episode, but that took precedence. 
I am not a huge fan of the idea that has become self-help. I think helping yourself is a good idea, but self-help as a thing, uh-uh. And in particular, in the music and acting industries, where a lot of that basically means you are paying somebody for information that you should be getting for free. So hopefully that entices you to hear an episode on that because I'm pretty fired up about it. I may even do one uh, on the 1-4 chord progression. If you know anything about music, for example, C major to F major or F minor, which is really nice. Son loves that progression. Uh, 1-4 is one of my all-time favorite progressions. Uh, and I want to kind of dive into what songs, famous or not, use that and the, what is the effect that it has. So the song for this episode is a song, again, from the new album here, It Wasn't Me, featuring songs by Wreck, The Drop, and many, many other bands. And that song is not a cover, it's an original. And I picked it because I couldn't, and when would I ever share this, first of all? And because we were talking about fetishizing the past, and this is the perfect example. When my son was growing, when he was hitting adolescence, started to get taller, thinner. And for a little while, I was calling him long boy. And I would do it in a weird accent. And then I started saying more things in that weird accent. And then I wrote an entire song. And then I recorded that song. And then I disguised that song as a folk song that was recorded in the 1930s by an anonymous performer and released it on YouTube with scratchy, you know, old scratchy 78 RPM sound, that whole thing, little warble, whatever. And then didn't tell anybody that it was that it wasn't something I had discovered in my dad's catalog of old LPs or whatever. And my point here is I wanted to faithfully recreate with a with hardly any tongue in cheek but with a lot of fun an older style of music partly to say that music that has existed will always exist in one way or another whether it's retro or somehow influencing something new and partly to say that this is something I will rarely do ever because I prefer to create music, at least under the banner of Rec or my own name, Nick DiMatteo, that incorporates old and new and future. It, it's not, I don't feel like I need to be faithful to any one type of genre, but in this case, the song you're about to hear, which is called Move Ahead Long Boy, I was very faithful to that one kind of old scratchy folk genre. So I hope you enjoy that. And let me know if you have any comments on anything that I have mentioned in this episode or any of the previous episodes of this wonderful half season so far, because my objectives here, as always, are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. Calling you to do what you want to Tap on your butt and holla whoop do Move ahead and do what you want to Fire up the cat and make it go Longy boy can go where you want to go Shorty boy can tell you no, 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 no. Long boy can move ahead in a row. Move ahead, long boy, move ahead. Move ahead, long boy. Don't you let the dirt become your head. Get up, get up. Don't let the grassy grow under your head. Move ahead, long boy, move ahead. Long bike, long bike, move ahead. 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 Long bike, move
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 